Well, in case you've lost sight of it, am I on? Yeah. In case you've lost sight of it, God and Christmas go together. More than Bing Crosby, more than Charles Dickens, and more than Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life. Because Christmas is about what God has done for us in his son that we could never do for ourselves. But even as I say that, I know there's a big problem. Because we got a lot of people today that say they don't believe in God anymore. In fact, it's much more acceptable to claim atheism today. Because supposedly we've got a kinder, gentler version of atheism than what Nietzsche kicked off 140 years ago with his death of God talk. But let me help you. What we actually have today is a much more illogical and inconsistent version of atheism. You ready? That keeps reaching over into our camp and wanting to hold on to some things that can only be true if there is a God. Oh, people are more than willing to reject God and his authority on their lives. But they keep trying to hold on to some of the benefits of Christianity. Why? I'll tell you why. Because life is hard. And it's really hard to live if there is no God. You would actually be tempted to kill yourself. Which is what Nietzsche and the early atheists constantly struggled with. While their books are still printed and promoted, what isn't largely promoted is that in their writings, they were consistent. They said the only real question on the table is suicide. If you came from nothing, you're headed nowhere, you are nothing, there is no purpose, there is no reason, why not end it now? That's what they wrestled with. That's why Julian Barnes, best-selling author, starts his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, with this opening sentence. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I miss him. And then he goes on to admit that though he never really had any faith to lose, he still finds himself dreading. This is an unbeliever, you guys. He says he finds himself dreading the gradual ebb of Christianity because he misses the sense of purpose that the Christian narrative affords. Let me help you understand what he's talking about. What's the Christian narrative and what does it bring to the table and afford? Oh, just this. Ready? That every human being, black, white, male, female, regardless of ethnicity or nationality, is created in the image of God with dignity and worth from birth. You don't have to do anything. You're in the image of God. Oh, but there's more. You have a purpose and a reason for living. You were created in the image of God and for the glory of God. Oh, but it gets even better. And this creator God longs to be in relationship with you and to love you like you will never be loved by anyone else in this world. That's what the Christian narrative affords. 
He says, I miss the sense of purpose that the Christian narrative affords. He goes on to say, and I miss the sense of wonder and belief that haunts Christian art and architecture. Look at me, especially if you're here and you're young today. Ooh, let me help you. As you may only be reading books that have been rewritten in really bad ways. Christianity has not crushed the art world. In fact, Christianity for centuries has inspired and fueled and fostered some of the greatest paintings and sculptures and architecture and musical compositions that have ever been created by mankind because they were created by people who believed in God and saw the wonder and beauty and complexity and order of this world as an extension of and a reflection of that God and thought it was worth working hard and digging into to put it on display for the glory of God. This week I've been listening to Handel's Messiah. The man knew God loved God, and it inspired him to give us Handel's Messiah. I could go on and on and on and on. Oh, listen to me. Christians aren't the ones who live with their eyes shut tight. Christians are ones who live with their eyes wide open and see more. They see more. They see the wonder and beauty and order and complexity, even in the midst of a fallen, broken world, because they know God. And they see what he's done. He says, I miss the sense of purpose. I miss the wonder and beauty that Christianity brought. He goes on to say, I miss the God that inspired Italian painting and French stained glass, German music and English chapter houses. And those tumble down heaps of stone on Celtic headlands, which were once symbolic beacons in the darkness and the storm. But now here's what really stood out to me. Because he goes on to say and stunt and and state bluntly that Christianity is a foolish lie. But then he says, quote, it was a beautiful lie. Now you think about that for a minute. A beautiful lie. Maybe this Christmas we should celebrate it's a beautiful lie instead of it's a wonderful life and make a movie out of that. And so let me ask you, oh, let me ask you, because these things matter, you guys. I know we're in a season of wonder and inspiration. I remember a few years ago, Macy's department store just chose to use the word believe. It was on all the rags. Believe. Believe what? They didn't give us what to believe. Just believe. You guys, just believing doesn't change your life. You got to sink your teeth into something of substance. What do you believe? Oh, listen. Mm. Does it matter whether Christianity and the birth of Jesus as the only perfect God man actually happened and is true? Or can this Christmas story, can this Christmas story just be beautiful and inspirational like other classic fiction literature? Does something have to be true to be beautiful? It's not a trick question. No. I read classic fiction. 
Charles Dickens wrote some great things that are beautiful. But let me tell you this. It does have to be true to solve our biggest problem. The sin problem that separated us from a holy God. Listen to me. Our sin condition required more than inspiration. It needed salvation. And that's what God was doing when he gave us his son. Christmas is all about giving. You guys, God gave the greatest gift when he gave us his son. We needed a savior, not just inspiration, a savior. Oh, if Christianity and the Christmas story are not true, then there is no hope for mankind. We will not solve it with an economic policy. We will not solve it with a political party. We will not solve it with greater education. If this Christmas story is not true, there is no hope for mankind. And yet, Julian Barnes gets it right with his word foolish. You say, what? I hope you realize I'm not offended by the word foolish and neither should you be. The Bible actually tells us that's the way human beings would see it. God in flesh. God as a baby in a manger, in a stable. Foolish, foolish. And that leads to my first point. You see, number one, the gospel and this Christmas story sound foolish to us. In fact, the gospel and this Christmas story are foolish to our human way of thinking. But it's not a lie. Stay with me. Those two words are not synonymous. Just because something sounds foolish does not mean it is a lie. You realize the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, uses the word foolish or folly nine times. The Apostle Paul had the equivalent of a PhD education in that day. The Apostle Paul was that guy. It'd be like saying he went to MIT and Harvard and Yale when history tells us he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was trained by the leading, 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 leading thinker of the day. And yet God saved him. And he trusted in Christ. And he uses the word folly or foolish nine times in his first letter to the Corinthians. Let me show you some of it. We're going to use our Bibles today. If you didn't bring a Bible, just go ahead and just hang your head and be sad, really sad, because you are like left out on the edges of all that's going on. We're going to use our Bible a lot. We're going to get to John, but it's going to take us a while. We're going to go all other places before we get to John, because it's all so good. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let me show you some of what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? 
Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? We got debaters of this age. God mocks them all. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. To what? Say it. Say it louder. Save. To save those who do what? What's the word? Believe. What the world sees as foolish is actually the power of God to save anyone who believes. And news alert, again, young people, you need to understand it's not just stupid, ignorant, backwater bumpkins that have come to faith in Christ and Christianity. That any thinking person, of course, There are more scientists who are Christians and the media doesn't want to reveal it. Why? Because when they dig into the complexity of our universe, they are left in awe and say, there must be a creator God. This could not have just happened. The man who led the DNA project for years to map out the DNA helix is a Christian. Because he said, how in the world could this have happened from an explosion? No, that's what's stupid and ignorant. To believe that. Mic drop. (laughs) Tell your friends. It's not just stupid people who are Christians. Oh, it's the power to save. Oh, but there's more. The reason it looks so foolish Get ready. Is it because it looks so weak and human beings despise weakness, right? We're all about be strong, 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 strong. It looks weak. It looks weak. So point number two, the gospel and this Christmas story look incredibly weak to us. Oh, listen, the cross and the Christmas story are filled with weakness and shocking humility. Two things that human beings have a huge aversion towards. Weakness and humility. Weakness and humility. And yet, weakness and humility are inherent in this gospel message and in this Christmas story, weakness, humility. And so it's not just foolish to human thinking, it's shot full of weakness and humility because at the very heart of Christianity, right? This is not the way we have done it. This doesn't attract human beings naturally. At the very heart of Christianity, you guys, is a savior who laid aside his rights and humbled himself to the point of death, even the most degrading and shameful kind of death on a cross. Human beings are just like, if that's the leader, I don't want to be a part of that group, right? That's not natural to us. Give me strength, give me pomp, give me power, give me. It looks foolish to us, it looks weak. To us. 
Let me show you what I'm talking about in Philippians 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Humility and weakness are at the heart of the gospel and this Christmas story every year. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You realize it's saying Jesus was equal to God. Second person of the Trinity, full rights, blessings, and he didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp it. He didn't fight for his rights. He didn't say, do you know who I am? Send somebody else. He did not hold on to his rights. Verse seven, but made himself, say it, nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Here's Christmas, you guys. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I know we've got crosses now in art. We've got crosses as jewelry. But you need to understand that is not the origin of this. That is not where this started. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong if you wear one. The Persians, the Persians thought of this form of capital punishment. The Romans perfected it. You can read history where they would crucify thousands of enemy soldiers at the same time and just line the crosses up and down the streets of Rome. Persians thought of it. Romans perfected it. And then Jesus chose it and accepted it as the way he would die for our sins. It was the most degrading, humiliating, shameful way ever contrived for someone to die. It was designed to keep you alive for days, but struggling in excruciating pain. You were crucified. Artists have the, have the appropriate sense to put a little loincloth on them, but you were crucified naked. Shame, degradation. And Jesus chose it and accepted it as the form of death. He would die Not for his sins. He didn't have any. But for mine. For yours. Your sin was placed on him in that moment. That's why he cried out from the cross. My God. My God. Why have you what? Forsaken me. Because God in that moment turned his back on his son for the first time ever in all of eternity. And treated him as if he was us. Human thinking, this is foolish. Human thinking, this is weak, shameful, weak. Because this cuts against the grain of our human nature that seeks to promote ourselves 
and to cling to every and any right that we think is ours. Do we live in a, lot, in a day right now that's about rights? Oh, gasp, heavens. Nobody's looking to serve anybody. Nobody's looking to prefer anybody. Whew. What are my rights? 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 And he laid aside his rights, humbled himself, taking on flesh and being obedient to the Father. His earthly life fully obeyed the Father and kept the law perfectly. And then went to the cross to die for the fact that we can't keep the law at all, let alone perfectly. Oh, this cuts against the grain of our human nature that seeks to promote ourselves and to cling to any and every right we think is ours, to push and shove and posture ourselves, to get, to gain, to take, and to keep as much as possible. There's how we think. And then here is God in flesh laying aside his rights, humbling himself, foolishness, weakness. And so on this much, the Apostle Paul and Julian Barnes do agree that foolishness and weakness are what characterize the heart of Christianity and this Christmas story. But now here's where they part ways. Because unlike Julian Barnes, the Apostle Paul understood that God's ways are not our ways. And that leads to my third point, number three. The gospel and this Christmas story were not meant to inspire you like a Hallmark movie. It wasn't meant to give you tingly feelings like when you squint your eyes and look at the tree and see the lights. It wasn't meant to just give you a warm feeling when you drink wassail. Like, oh, I've been waiting for this all year. Wassail. Point number three, the gospel and this Christmas story are actually how God intends to save us. To save us to rescue us, to solve our biggest problem. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1 again. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1, and this time jump down to verse 27. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. But God. I've gone all the way through my Bible, and I have highlighted every but Because when you see that conjunction, my friend, when you see the conjunction but heading up a verse or a sentence, what you know is that it signals what's coming next is not what we would expect. But God doesn't think like we do, doesn't roll like we do, doesn't design things the way we would, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why would he do it this way? He's going to tell us in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Does he know us or what? Right? If there was any way we could take credit for this, we would. So he's designed it in a way that you just can't. The very design of the gospel and this Christmas story makes boasting, leaves no place for boasting. It's like what God did, what God did, what God did. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So watch this. So it's nothing you did, but when you trust in Christ, here's what you get. He's about to tell you all that you get. Christ, who became to us, some of your versions say for us, who became for us or to us, wisdom from God. You didn't have wisdom till you got Christ. Who became for us, oh, this is good, righteousness. You realize you have no righteousness of your own? Zero. In fact, Isaiah 64 says, the little bit of what you think is good, what does he say? It's filthy rags. And it was literally a word in the Hebrew that meant the rags they would wrap leper wounds with. So this is nasty stuff. That's what he thinks of your efforts and the best you can do. Filthy rags. But when you get Christ, oh, you get wisdom. You get righteousness. What you couldn't get on your own, it's applied to your account as if it was yours. So that when you believe in Jesus, you get the righteousness of Jesus. And so when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your record, but he sees the perfect, glorious record of his son. Woo! Merry Christmas. Really, really good news. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That word redemption means to buy back. A price is paid to buy. It was a word that was used related to slavery and debtedness. You realize when you were born, you were born a sinner, and that means you came into this world, yes, in the image of God, but with a debt to God, because you're a sinner. You have a sin debt that you could never pay, that you can't make right. You say, well, that's awful. Well, it's not awful when you think, and then God says, but I've done for you what you can never do for yourself. I'm taking care of that. I actually broke into this world, took on flesh, stooped, and stepped into the squalor of this world to do for you what you could never do, to buy you back, to pay the price. Sanctification, righteousness, redemption. Get this. After 400 years of silence, you realize there's 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1. 400 years of silence. No word from God. No prophet. No dream. No visions. After 400 years, God broke the silence with the gurgling cry of a newborn baby in a manger, in a stable, in a little backwater town called Bethlehem. 
we would not do it that way. We would have chosen Rome. We would have chosen a political center, an economic metropolitan area. Nope. Baby. Manger. Stable. Bethlehem. That's what God has done for us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't roll like us. But he's so much better than us. Oh, my goodness. So now with all that being said, I want you to hear this beautiful, humanly foolish, weak, but absolutely true and life-changing historical account with fresh ears like you've never heard it before. Go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Again, I want to point out to you, the Bible is history, not fiction. It's written unlike any other religious book and is not written like a myth. It gives details with historical figures that really lived and you can find it outside of the Bible. That's why it names so many names. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Look at me. Mary was with child so that God could be with us. Don't ever wonder again, does he know what it's like? Does he know what I'm going through? Does he? He does. He do- Christianity is the only, only religion that can answer that way. He came into our world, was fully human and fully God, understood sickness, understood sorrow, in- understood treason and being abandoned by friends, understood loneliness, understood hunger. Under- he gets it. Yes, yes. She was with child so that God could be with us. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. It's also worth noting, as you, if you waste any of your time reading books about angels and all that, every time an angel appears to people, they are terrified. So when people talk about, yeah, an angel was at the foot of my bed, reminded me of Elvis and my grandmother, no, no. 
Every time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, they freak out. The angel has to say, first words before he gives the message that he was sent to give. What does he say first? Fear not. Because you've wet your pants. I've actually got good news for you. (laughs) Terrifying. The angel of the Lord shone around them. And they didn't say, wow, look at that. Maybe we can do an interview on, no. They were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, what? Fear not. Oh, for behold, I bring you, what? Good news of great joy that will be, how many people is this for? All black, white, male, female. Good news that will be for all the people Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a, say it, not just a good teacher, not the first CEO feed the hungry, not an amazing inspirational example. He was all that. We'd still go to hell if that's all he was. A, say it again, Savior, who is Christ, the what? Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now that's the Christmas story. As Luke gives us, Luke was very detailed. That's why we're preaching through it right now as a church family. That's the Christmas story as Luke gives us the historical details. Oh, But the gospel of John, you guys, is unlike any other gospel. He doesn't start, he doesn't even tell you about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't have lists of genealogies. His purpose was very different. The gospel of John is unlike any other gospel because he gives more of a behind the scenes insider look. Oh yeah, baby, in a manger, in a stable, in Bethlehem. But what was really going on? On and why. That's what the Gospel of John does. So turn with me to John chapter 1. I told you we'd get there. John chapter 1. And we're going to be in this marvelous chapter the whole month. John chapter 1. That's why I wasn't in a hurry to get there today. We got the rest of the month. John chapter 1. Listen to how different this is than the other three Gospels. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. He's the living Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So don't make a mistake here, my friends. Jesus was not created when he was born in a manger. 
He was in the beginning. Notice the parallel between John 1 and Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word with God. And he's actually the one who did the creating, Jesus. Jesus. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations say, has not comprehended it. That's not the best translation. The Greek word can mean either one because it was a word that meant you have to get a hold of something to understand it. He's saying there's nothing that has overcome this, that has conquered this. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We're living in times right now that perhaps you're tempted on certain days depending on how much news you're foolishly paying attention to. And how little Bible you might be reading. To think, is darkness winning? Is darkness going to win? Where is this headed? Let me help you. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand and be clueless. I'm not clueless. But oh my goodness, my friend. As I keep reading God's word, we know who wins. Darkness will not overcome it. It's not. Even right now, you guys... In places that are hard places like Iran, more people have come to faith in the last 10 years than in the last century, 100 years. You realize that? People are coming to faith in Christ in droves. Of course the media is not going to tell you that. God is on the move. Light is spilling into our world. God's spirit is moving through this world and God's word cannot be stopped and God is doing what he promised to do. Darkness cannot overcome it. Skip to verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Did they recognize him largely? Why? He didn't look like what they expected. They would have had a king. They would have had someone in royalty, right? Everything about it is not what we expect. Not what we expect. You don't match what we think. They did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, the Jews, who actually had the Old Testament scriptures, had the promises of God, had the hope of a covenant that he was going to send someone. And they're the very ones that rejected him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. Oh, here's that glorious conjunction again. Verse 12, what's the word? Say it louder. But to how many? All. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a gift. You realize you're not born a child of God. You're born in the image of God. You're an image bearer, but you have to be born again to become a child of God. You're in the image of God, but you're outside the family of God as a sinner. To everyone who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right 
to become. Sometimes as I share the gospel, people will say to me, I've been a Christian my whole life. That's a little too long. That may be your perspective, but at some point you were lost and at one point you became saved. Every single person is born outside the family of God and has to become a child of God. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus and believe. Verse 13, how did this happen? How does someone receive him and believe? He's going to tell you who were born not of blood. So you don't arrive already in this condition. You don't know him already. Not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. You can't just will it and say, I'll do it. I'll earn it. Tell me what to do. No, not of the will of the flesh. Oh, nor of the will of man. Your parents can't do it for you. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. You're like, oh yeah, my mom and dad are Christians. My grandparents, my... I hope you're not riding on that and think, therefore, I'm good to go. You are not. Every person personally has to make this decision. It's not of blood. You're not born in a right standing with God. It's not of the will of the flesh. You can't just take care of it yourself and do this. And no one else can do this for you. Oh, How does it happen? Another but. Look at the end of verse 13. But of God. God has to give it to you. When you humble yourself and say, all right, sounds foolish to my human way of thinking. Looks like weakness and humility. But guess what? Looks like my only hope. It also looks like my only hope. I am a sinner in need of a savior. Thank you, God, for this gift. I'm not going to leave it under the tree of my life. I'm going to receive it and believe that's when you are saved. Forgiven. Made right. Have the righteousness of Jesus applied to your account. Verse 14. And the word, here's Christmas, Became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of. Two things we desperately need in our world. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We're going to spend the rest of this month in this chapter. And so I'll close with this point number four. I want you to know the purpose of this entire book of John. We're just going to dig into chapter one, but I want, you to, I want you to know John's heart. Point number four, John loves you and wants you to believe in Jesus and be saved. That's the whole purpose of his book. Believe in Jesus and be saved. The apostle John throughout history, he was the one that would lie on the bosom of Jesus, close to Jesus. He was in that inner circle. John throughout history was known as the apostle of love because he makes reference to love 80 times in his writings. He also makes reference to truth 45 times. We live in a day that acts like, oh, love's all that matters. Doesn't matter about truth. Both matter. He references love 80 times. He references truth 45 times. But oh my goodness, there's a third word he uses more than any other in his gospel. It's the word believe. 
that he uses 100 times. And so here's what I think you get when you put it all together. You got love, truth, believe. Put that all together. He wants us to believe in the truth about Jesus so that you can enter into a love relationship with Jesus that can never be severed. There's the gospel of John. There's the reason he wrote it. Oh, he longs for you to believe. He wants to convince you that Jesus is your only hope and to get you to believe in him. Look at verse 11 again. Came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What about you today? Have you come to the point in your life yet? I doubt anyone in here thought, oh, until this message, I didn't know there was a Jesus. You can be aware of Jesus and still not be saved by Jesus. Have you come to the point in your life where you have received him for yourself and believed in his name? That's what John's longing for you to do. That's what I'm longing and praying for you to do. And that's why John summarizes his entire gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, when he says this, but these are written. Everything he wrote, he's he's towards the end of his letter. These are written. Why did you write it, John? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, say the word, life. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I got life, I'm alive, let me help you. He uses the Greek word zoe. They had two words for life. One was bios, where we get biosphere, biology, that simply meant you're breathing, you have a pulse, your heart is beating. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word Zoe, a word they had that meant the very essence of really living. My friend, when you're born, you get bios, breath. It's only when you're born again by believing in Jesus that you get Zoe, life, life. And you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you are finding it out. I met with someone in the last couple weeks talking about the gospel and Christianity who looked at me and said, I'm finding out. And they grew up in our church, so they've heard it. I'm finding out that nothing lasts. Nothing satisfies me like I thought it would. And then they looked at me and said, and I know you say that all the time. Yeah, I do. I've preached that. Because it's so true. But everyone thinks they have to find it out for themselves. I'll be the exception. If I get enough of this, if I get this, if I get this, my friend, everything else in this world is bios. Until you know Jesus, you don't have Zoe. Life, life. You're like, oh, here's what I was, oh, this is what I've been missing. Life, the very essence of life, to be alive in 
Christ. So I want you to bow your heads as we close. Because I don't want you to rush out of here and get ready for the Bengals game or rush out of here and do Christmas shopping. I want you to take time to consider have you become a child of God? Has God the Father given you the right to become a child of God because you have believed in the Son of God? Do you have that? Maybe you're all around the edges of it. Maybe you've got religion. You've got all kinds of other stuff. I'm asking you, do you have life? Zoe, do you know that you're forgiven? Do you know that you're in the right standing with the God of the universe? Do you have peace with God? Do you have purpose? Because you know your creator God as your father God. And it's just changed everything about how you live and how you see life. Stop waiting. Stop looking for something else in this world to give it to you. Nothing else in this world can give you Zoe. Jesus. Give your life to him today and start really living. If, you, if you're ready to do that, I want to invite you to simply pray. Right where you sit in your heart, this simple prayer. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I could never save myself. I know something's off with me and the rest of the world. Something's off. Something's not right. Something's missing. Thank you for sending your son into this world to die for my sins and to pay the price. I believe, I receive your free gift now. Come into my life. Come into my life. Make me new Give me new birth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.